Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Hey, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Can you hear me? Okay, great. So we're going to begin with Tehillim, Mispos of Roshalema, Chavagot of Basen Yachasia. We're going to start with Kapitol Chach. Amnatseach, Mesmerle David, Yancha, Dene, Biam, Sarais, Agab Hashim, Heyakrid, Yishlach, Ezufa, Mikridesh, Mitzin, Yisadaka, Yiskar, Common Paisacha, Bailos, Pedash, and Sela, Yitanaka, Kuba, Baka, Bahalatas, Payanale. Nirana Nabishua Saka, the shame of the Hindu Nikol, Yamalia denied Kamashali Saka. Atio Dati Kiashia, the name is Sheikha, Yane Mishme Kacha, the verse is Shaiminai. A liver rachel, the Eliva Susan, the Nakhun Bishema, the name Hindu Naspir. Hema Karvin of Falova, Nakhun Kanu Vanis Ida, Adene Hashia, Nakhani, Yam Karinu. Our learning tonight should be a spouse for Fosh Nemo. If anybody is able to have their screens on, I'd love to see some people. And those of you who can't, I do understand. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank um, a few people who helped me prepare for this class. First of all, Rob Taikin, every learner, reviewed my notes. I really appreciate all the feedback. Um, Sister Marosa for helping me with guiding me in my teaching as well. And I want to mention Mrs. Esther Lincoln, who taught me so much on this topic. I would like to dedicate this class also to my mother who showed me how to keep this mitzvah meticulously and with dignity and grace. So this is the first of a two-part series. We're going to be focusing on a mitzvah that's very dear to us, the mitzvah of Kisui Reish, your covering. Tonight, we're going to be focusing more on the halachic aspect. And next week, we're going to deal with the delving into the chassidus. Um, it, there was a link posted in the chat. If any of you would like to follow along with the sources, you're welcome to check it out. Um, I will reference them during the class. And feel free, any questions that come up, feel free to either email them or WhatsApp them to me. The email address as well as phone number will be put into the chat as well. So you could feel free to send them in and in my session next week we'll, we will address all the questions that come in. I'll do my best with that. Okay, so we're gonna start. 22 years ago, just a few months, if you don't mind hearing yourself. Twenty-two years ago, just a few months after my chasana, I was asked to speak to a group of high school kids um, in a BBYO camp. So most of them were from a conservative background. There were some reform and unaffiliated and very few modern Orthodox. And they were excited to have a Hasidic Orthodox woman. They were going to ask me any questions they wanted about Yiddishkeit. So we sat and we had some great discussions. And of course, the topic of Kisirish came up and we explored it extensively. The best part was, though, when right when we were finishing, one of the girls timidly raised her hand and said, I hope if I ask you, but why don't you cover your hair? So I was proudly able to show her the little shaitel jiggle. And then, of course, I covered my hair and that shaitels are able to be beautiful as well as comfortable and easy to wear, too. 
So it is a tough topic, a tough question of why we do cover our hair. And I hope that exploring the topic with you tonight will be able to gain some clarity and excitement in it. So the mitzvah of Kisri Reich, I think, is deeply connected to women. And I was trying to think why. There are probably many reasons, but one of them, you know, the Hebrew word for face is panim, because panim reflects the pnim, the inside. And we know that the pnimius of a person is expressed and manifest through their face. And if you think about it, however we're going to cover our hair, it's going to impact our appearance and our expression of our deepest self. So if you find that this mitzvah connects with you in some way or um, rubs you in some way at a very deep core, there's a good reason for it. My hope is that our class will accomplish two things, two goals. We're all familiar with the, one of the most basic psukim in all of Torah. And here we're saying that Torah, on the one hand, tziva, is commanded to us. And on the other hand, we're also saying that Russia, it's a Yerusha, an inheritance for us. What is the significance? Every mitzvah that we have, including this mitzvah, is tziva. It's commanded to us, right? So what is the idea of a command? Hashem commanded us, and Hasid teaches us also the penis, it's a Lashem Tzavs of the Chibra. Hashem wants us to do it. There's an element of Kabbalah's all. There's also an element of Tzavs of the Chibra. We're connecting with Hashem through the mitzvah. It's an incredible opportunity for us to connect with Hashem. That's one element, the Tziva. But Torah is also a Yerusha. It's an inheritance. It's my inheritance as much as it's your inheritance. What's the idea of an inheritance? A Yerusha is something which reflects a person is able to achieve something that is completely out of his reach. You can work and you can achieve certain things. But a Yerusha, an inheritance, the poorest person can inherit millions of dollars, something that was completely out of his range, out of his radar, he's able to inherit, though he can't achieve it in any other way. So the concept of an inheritance is having a treasure, having something go beyond us, but something that we're able to attain and appreciate in a very deep way. This mitzvah too, it's a commandment, and sometimes we feel that piece of it. It's an opportunity to connect with Hashem. There's that Safsa V'chibar element to it too. But let's not forget that it's also a Yerusha. It's an immense treasure, a hain Atta, an immense treasure that Hashem has given us. And my hope tonight is twofold, that we should clarify the tziva piece, the mitzvah piece of what exactly is expected of us, a little bit of the why it is that's expected of us, but also that we should be able to appreciate that this is a treasure that Hashem gave us as Yiddish woman. It's an opportunity for incredible brachis as we're going to explore and see. And if we can have a little bit of that appreciation through learning tonight, then it will be all worth it. Now, sometimes, the, the way that we can appreciate it is very easy. Some of us are able to find that more easily or feel that more easily, and that, that's okay. But very often it's more difficult. We have to think about it, we have to apply it. If you think about it, you know, Tyrus compared to water, the Nami says, you're thirsty drink, right? That it's something which quenches our thirst. We're in the summer now, it's a hot day, you take refreshing water, and if you just feel refreshed and revived from it, that's what learning could and should do. But sometimes it takes a little bit of effort. 
probably down the, all of our streets, there's the main water line that carries the water to our neighborhoods. But that's not enough. Maybe if your house is right on the street, you'll be able to you know, just get water very easily from that main water line. But most homes are set back. And in order for us to get that water so that we can actually use it in, in our homes in the way that we need, we need some some way to draw the water from the, way, the main water line. And it's those pipes and the elbows and if the homes are higher up or lower down or curved a little bit, there's effort taken from getting the water that's there so that we can actually use it and appreciate it. So when we learn also, sometimes it's learning and it just kind of resonates with us and we're good to go. But sometimes we have to think about it, internalize it, talk it over with our friends. Think of like, how am I going to do something about this? What's the looking from it? So doing this. And a very key piece is that even though a lot of the mitzvah sort of relates to us in the same kind of way, we're all unique. We all have our own lifestyles and needs and challenges. And there is nothing that could replace the individual guidance that we need when we have questions, when we have a challenge, when we have something that we have to figure out. And in, in doing a bunch of surveys before the class tonight and asking a lot of women different things, a common thread that I saw that when I asked people, what helps you perform this mitzvah in the best way you can? Every single person I asked referenced something that they specifically were told that helped them over a hump that they had, that they want to do it the best way, but, and someone helped them address that, but, and that's what enabled them to feel like they're able to perform the mitzvah in the best way they can. Okay, so we're going to begin. We're going to learn a little bit about the origin of the mitzvah. We're going to examine a little bit of the hal halachic elements of the mitzvah. And next week, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into the more esoteric piece of it as well. Okay. So what is, if you have this source sheet, I will briefly reference it, the sources that I have. If you don't have it in front of you, it's also totally fine. You'll be able to follow any of it. Okay. So what is the source of this mitzvah? We learned this mitzvah from the Torah, from the story of the Isha Saita, the woman who was secluded with a, a strange man, and she was warned against doing this again. And yet she placed herself in the situation once again. And in the process of coming to the Kaihan and going to the whole procedure that we're familiar with of the Isha Saita, the Pasuk says in Parshas Bamidbar, Parshas, I'm sorry, Parshas Nasli Seifa Bamidbar, Parak Hay, Pasuk Bilchas, the Pasuk says, reference number one. It says, Upara Esresh Haisha, that the Kaihan uncovered, he reveals the hair of the woman, meaning, a woman's hair is covered, and here the Kaihin exposed her hair. And in the Gemara, we learn from Rabbi Shmuel. It says, Azhara Mikan. There's a learning, a teaching from here, a warning from here. The Yisrael to Yiddish women. That we don't go out with an uncovered, with an exposed hair. So way back in the story of the Isha Saita is the origins, the roots in Torah for this mitzvah. We're also familiar with the very famous story of Torah, right when the Yedalach Mitzrayim, right when they were starting to become formed as a nation. We have the story of Torah and his rebellion, and we know that the wife of Ein ben Peles, she went and stood, um, sat in front of her home, exposed her hair, thereby protecting and saving her husband's life, really, through doing that, since even the rebels, the people who were fighting against Moshe Rabbeinu, wouldn't dare come close to the home where Ein ben Peles's wife was sitting, being that her hair was exposed, and of course, women cover their hair. There are several places in Halacha where we find these topics are discussed, three specifically. We find in Hilchus Ishus, when it discusses the proper modes of behavior, 
in a marriage. It discusses these laws. We also find them in Hilfus Ksubais when it discusses the grounds on which a woman would be divorced. In those topics, we find these, these halakhas discussed. And also, though you might not expect it, in Hilfus Kriyashma, we find these halakhas as well, because um, in discussing the terms of erva and in what situations a man is able to say a devashap kedusha and what types of situations can be dominant, if there's an exposure of something which needs to be covered, these laws are discussed there as well. So we're going to jump, though, to the Mishnah, the Gemara, where we're extrapolating from the stories in the Torah, and we're going to see how the origins of this mitzvah are analyzed, and we're going to get to Hashem, the bottom line halakha soon through a little bit of the hishtashas um, of the halakha. So if you want to look in source number two, it quotes a Mishnah, which is talking about different um, situations where a woman may um, need to leave her marriage, be divorced without accepting the super because of her um, behavior, which is makes it impossible for her husband to remain married to her. And there are two types of laws that are discussed. There are certain laws which are called Das Maisha. Those are laws that are Midaraisa, Torah, biblical laws. Then there's a category called Das Yehudis, which is similar to Rabbanan in that it's the mode of conduct that Jewish women accepted and always kept and thereby um, are binding for women. So the mission discusses in what situation would um, a woman be violating Das Yehudis, being a transgression of the level of Das Yehudis, like similar to a Rabbanan command. So this is source number two in the booklets. It says, the Ezihi Das Yehudis, if a woman goes outside in public with her head exposed, she's violating Das Yehudis. And I probably the wheels are turning in your head and you're thinking to yourself, that's not Das Yehudis. We just learned that that's in the Torah, that's a, that that's a Daraisa type of transgression. Why would the Mishnah say that this is a transgression of Das Yehudis? Isn't this a biblical requirement to have your hair covered? So the Gemara analyzes this Mishnah and comes to the conclusion that me, Daraisa, it's enough, it's sufficient to wear something called a kalta. We're going to explain what that is. But Das Yehudis, the proper mode of behavior, actually, the expectation is more than that. The expectation is that there's a better covering than that. That's the Das Yehudis. So when it says she goes out with her hair exposed and the transgression of Das Yehudis, meaning it's not a proper covering. What is this kalta? So there are many different ways of interpreting the kalta. Rashi says that it was like a basket, that part of the basket covered the hair, and then the upper part of the basket was able to hold things in it. So the part of the basket that covered the hair was a kalta, but was also not a complete covering. Why not? Because the basket is woven. And you can see through the weaves, the holes of the weave. So if a woman was wearing just the kalta, then biblically that sufficed for covering her hair. But Das Yehudis, the, um, the additional expectation was that that is insufficient. A more substantial head covering was expected. The next um, perspective we're looking at is the Rambam, which is a little bit um, ambiguous, there are very um, various ways of understanding the Rambam. The Chassam Seifer explains the Rambam to mean that actually the hair on the head was covered. The issue was with the Kalpa is that there were small hairs that protruded on, on the side beyond the covering of the head. And because of that, there was a redeed, a scarf that was necessary to wear in addition to the Kalpa. 
There were even those who explained the Rambam to me that all the head on the hair was covered, but that there was a rigid and additional scarf, as you mentioned, like a kerchief that was worn beyond that. What's the bottom line? That biblically, there was an expectation to wear a kalka, which is a more basic kind of covering, but Das Yehudis requires the women to wear a full, proper, substantial covering so that all the hair is covered. So that's looking just at the original source in the mission of the Gemara. We're going to look through the halachic sources and come to the bottom line for us as Chabad women. I first want to jump into a little bit of an understanding of where does this whole idea come from? What would be the significance of covering our hair? In all the laws of stance, there is nothing else that is different for a, an unmarried woman and a married woman when it comes to these laws. Why suddenly does a woman have to cover her hair? So the true appreciation for this we'll have next week when we look at the Hasidists. But there are certain things that are explained that can give us a certain measure of clarity about this topic. And we're going to touch upon that now and then jump into the halacha. Okay, so we're ready? First of all, as we mentioned, it's a mitzvah. It's the will of Hashem that women, Jewish women, should behave in this way from when they're married. And we perform the mitzvah with Kabbalah's all. So before any explanations, that's the core of why we do mitzvahs. And I just want to look at a beautiful letter of the Rebbe that if you have the book, that it's page seven, it's the last page, where somebody actually asks the Rebbe, why do Jewish women wear a shekel? And the answer of the Rebbe is very profound. The Rebbe writes, you should bear in mind, first of all, that when it comes to any one of the many mitzvahs which God has given us, no man can, and can understand all the reasons for it because a man's understanding is limited while God's wisdom is without end. For example, a small child could not remember, could not understand the wisdom of a big professor, even if the professor tried to explain it to the child. Remember, both of them are human beings and the only difference between the professor and the child is in the number of years each one of them has been learning things. The baby has been learning for a number of days only and the professor has been studying for many years. Yet it would be silly for the baby or child to ask to understand a deep, difficult theory of the professor. Much, very much greater is the difference between a man who was created by God and the created himself who is eternal and whose wisdom can in no way be compared to that of man, even the wisest of men who has been learning even to 120 years. Therefore, the wise man and the smart child will not question or worry about all the reasons of a mitzvah but will do it willingly and joyfully. However, there are mitzvahs where Hashem in his kindness has disclosed a reason, only one or two of the infinite number of reasons. In connection with the shekel, one of the reasons, but by no means the only one, is that it makes the marriage between a man and his wife a holy union, and the two of them become like one. This brings them Hashem's additional blessings, making it a happy marriage, and that the children should also be well and happy and well provided for in all of their needs. So yes, it's a command of Hashem that's beyond our understanding, but there, there are also many things that we will learn that will give us an appreciation that the marriage becomes holy when a woman become, wears a shinkel, and it enables a couple to become like one, and it brings brachas for a happy marriage and that the children should be well and happy. Those are pretty powerful things. 
In addition to that, we will explore on a more simple level or a more basic level, a few of the explanations that are given for the fact that a woman covers her hair. One is that covering a woman's hair signifies that she's married and she's not available to anyone else besides her husband. So once a woman gets married, now her hair is covered. It's like that symbol, I'm in a different category. Another explanation that's brought down is that it's actually connected with a married woman requiring and wanting an extra measure of modesty. How so? So there's a famous story of in um, Shmobes where Amnon assaulted Tamar. And it says that after this experience, it says that Tamar covered her hair. She felt like her innocence was tampered with and she felt like she was yearning for more modesty in the situation. Her privacy, she became vulnerable and she didn't, she wanted to maintain the natural state of busha and sneeze, which she had. And therefore, after this experience, she covered herself. She covered her hair, signifying that I need an added measure of modesty now that I had a new experience. And actually, the Midrash on Parshas Nasai brings down this incident of Tamar when it describes the concept, the mitzvah of a woman covering her hair. As it says, source number three. Number three, we made Abdaisis Rol, Shehim Mechasis Reshehim. We learn that Jewish women cover their hair, cover their heads. Even though we don't have a proof from Tamar, we certainly have a hint, a, a remembrance of this incident. As the Pasuk says, Tamar took a kerchief and covered her hair. So once a woman gets married and she has an experience of a deeper connection with a man, she covers her hair signifying that I want to maintain an added measure of, of modesty, of tzneas, now that I'm in this very special relationship with my husband. This also explains why this mitzvah still applies to a woman who is no longer married, but once was married, like a widow or a divorcee, that they also had the experience and therefore that yearning for a modesty still exists and therefore the Mepharshim explained on the halakha that it applies also to a woman who once was married. There is one additional factor that we're going to bring up in connection with a woman covering her hair and the need for a woman to cover her hair. And this is the topic of Erba. It has certain halachic ramifications that a woman's hair takes on a status of erva, meaning a part of the body which needs to be covered, which causes inappropriate thoughts because of its beauty and uniqueness. And this is based on a pasuk in Shir Hashirim, which says, source number four, if behind your veil, your hair is like a flock of goats that's streaming down Targula. So a woman is praised for her tzmias, for taking her attractive hair and placing it behind a veil. And since it's supposed to be covered, Chazal classify it with the status of erva, which means it needs to now be covered. As the halacha states, source number five, Seir shel isha shedarka lachsaisli oser likus ganeda. The hair of a woman, which is customarily covered, it's forbidden to recite Shema, to say holy words to Davin in front of its exposure. So being that a woman's hair is erba, 
all the halakha of snares applied to it. And as we mentioned before, it's actually the only thing that has a different status for a married woman and an unmarried woman. So we see from here, to summarize, that there are actually two aspects relating to the halakhic aspects of covering here, two different elements relating to the halakhis of covering here. Number one is a dairaisa requirement for a woman to cover her hair, which is learned out in the story of the Isha Saita. And number two, there's also a rabbinic need for covering the hair because of its classification as erva. What we're gonna do now is start to explore a little bit of the halakhis and then get to the bottom line. There are many different aspects that are addressed in halakha. So we're gonna pull out four main questions or four main topics that we're going to explore from the, the text in halakha. And based on that, we'll get to the bottom line conclusion, okay? So we're going to look at who has to cover their hair. We're gonna look at where the hair needs to be covered. We're gonna look at how much hair needs to be covered. And we're also going to look at with what the hair can be covered. So four different questions we're going to explore based on the halakhas. Sometimes there are different opinions in different communities, and we're obviously going to focus as Chabad women at, at the Altarebbe as it's the Okay? We're up to source number six. So who must cover their hair? Let's look. Even as our Chabalah based the halakha states, Yiddish women should not go in the market, meaning in a public place with their heads exposed. Achas pnoya, achas ishes ish, that refers to a woman who once was married or a woman who is married. These are all situations where a woman needs to cover their hair. So this is the who, married or once was married. That's who is required to cover their hair. Let's jump on to the next question of where must the hair be covered? Is there a difference between different places, inside, outside, etc.? Okay, so we're going to start source number seven. Shochan Aruch, Evan Ha'ezer, Koktesvav Dalit. The halacha states, first it defines that Dasi Hudis is the minhag of Tzniyas, the behavior of Yiddish women. This determines what um, the halacha is. From their behavior, this is how the halacha was determined. And then what are the things that require a woman that are considered transgression of Dasi Hudis? So it says, that if somebody goes out into the marketplace or into a public um, alley or um, also a public courtyard with the hair exposed, this is a violation of Dasi Hudis. So we see from here that in public, it is prohibited for a woman to go out. This is a biblical transgression. Okay. Now we're going to look at what about other situations. So the Magin Avram, which is one of the primary Nisikalim and the Mepharshim on Shulchanara, and it's generally followed by Ashkenazim. Um, the Magin Avram quotes something very interesting on this subject. He references this halacha that's written, and he says as follows. We're looking at source number eight. The Magen Abram says that it sounds from the halacha that we just read, that specifically in the market, it's prohibited to go with the head exposed. But it doesn't seem like there's a specific 
prohibition about a private place where there are no people there. Aval, this is such an important part. The Magen Avram says, Bazoikar Parshas Nasi Magen Avram is quoting the Zayar, and he says, the Zayar Hechmer Ma'ai is extremely stringent. That none of the hair of a woman should be exposed. And this is the proper mode of behavior. This is the proper way for a woman to conduct herself. So it's very interesting because rarely in halacha does it quote the Zayhar. And it's halacha is where halacha is discussed. And yet the Magin Avram finds it crucial to quote in this regard when he's mentioning that the halacha emphasizes the public prohibition. But even when it's a private situation, because the Zayhar explains how important it is for a woman to have all of her hair covered, and we're going to discuss this more later, the, the Magen Abraham says, because of this, the chen this is the proper way for a woman to conduct herself. And he's quoting this in halacha. So he's saying that this is the proper mode of behavior. Clearly, the Zayhar's strict stance on this topic, which is referenced by many halachic sources, puts a lot of weight on the conduct of a woman in private person. We're going to look now at another halacha, which isn't directly um, regarding the hair of a woman, but is regarding the private conduct of people, both men and women, in Din Levishas and this actually also impacts the laws of hair covering. We are in source number nine, Simon uh, when it talks about the proper way for people to behave. It says the Torah praises the attribute of modesty in many sources. And the Chachamim command, that a person should be tzanua in all of his ways, the and not to behave on the opposite of tzniyas, even if nobody's around. A person is alone by himself, he should still behave in a way of tzniyas, as it's described in the halachas of tzniyas. Even alone at night, in his own private rooms, a person behaves in a way of tzniyas, he behaves like a yid, and there's a sense that Hashem is there. Hashem fills the whole world, dark and light are the same to Hashem, and therefore, a person doesn't just expose his body parts and walk around without clothing when he's by himself. Rather, he covers himself properly even when he's sleeping at night. He has a sheet over him, he has a certain covering. So we see from here that when a person is alone, the laws of tzniyah still apply, and certainly it applies to the laws of hair covering as well. So to summarize the halakhic parameters of hair covering in private, there are some opinions that, that when a woman is in total privacy, she could be lenient when it comes, comes to covering her hair, but it's still commendable and proper to be careful with this. Like we said, the chin, what we like, it's the proper way to conduct themselves. That's one approach. 
But then there are others who maintain that a woman actually needs to cover her hair in total privacy, except in a situation of tzere. We'll explain that in a moment. Why? These authorities maintain that since the custom adopted by women was to cover their hair in private as well, this takes on a halachic status. So key halachic authorities, including the Mishnadura, the Hashem Seifer, the Tzimet our Shita, are actually maintaining that a woman covers her hair. What was this exception of Tzayrath? Obviously, there are going to be certain situations where a woman needs to uncover her hair. And when a person needs to cover her hair, she uncovers it. For example, when she's bathing, that's a clear situation. It's not more tzniyas or more from to take a shower with a head cover on. It's just silly, right? So where there's a need that requires the hair to be uncovered in a proper way, a woman uncovers it, takes care of the need, and then covers it again. But as Yiddish women, we're careful and we appreciate that even when we're alone in private, our hair is properly covered. We will elaborate on this and see the Rebbe's passion and emphasis on this topic and focus more a little bit on the Zohar and the tremendous brachis that are associated with this mitzvah. We will get to that shortly. So, so far, we discussed who needs to cover their hair and we discussed where the hair needs to be covered. We're going to go on up to the third point of how much of the hair needs to be covered. So we mentioned that midaraisa is the concept of a kalta, meaning a face to covering suffices, but Buddhist requires an additional cover, which means that any place that a woman is required to cover their hair, it means it has to be fully covered. Practically, there's no situation where it could be a partial covering. A covering means the hair is properly covered. No holes, no see-through, no breaches. The only questionable area is Saris Hayates Hotsitsmasa, meaning the hairs that protrude beyond the tresses like the payas, like the little bit that sticks out and you know, beyond the tefal, maybe a very low hairline. These would be called saris that protrude from the tefal. And this depends a little bit on specific communities. We are going to see how the Tsenachsadic Paskins for us as the Baba children. So let's look at source number 10, where we're quoting the Akhmeb Shafanara on this very topic, and then it's clarified by the Tanakh today. So the Akhmeb writes, Seyar shal isha shedarkalach The hair of a woman with absolutely covered has the status of erva. Mipnesha may be leaving here because it brings to inappropriate thoughts. The Osirlikhois in the Svalakanda, a man is not allowed to daven or say holy words in front of exposed hair. Even if it's his wife's hair. But if it's girls, unmarried girls, who are permitted to go with their hair exposed, and in certain countries where it was customary for girls to have, a, for women to have the little hairs exposed, then it would be okay to read Shema in front of it, since it doesn't bring the hair. And also, of course, it's fine to have a shetel and to say in front of a shetel as well. So we see from here, the author is saying that a married woman hair must be covered, that because it's erva, it's not permitted to save Ramsha Bhusha in its exposure. A shaykel is not considered exposed hair, 
trying to say the Russian Revolution kind of a shito. Regarding the hair that protrudes beyond the tresses, the author says that it depends on the specific community and certain places could be permissible. And that Samoxer clarifies what this means for us. So on the bottom of the Shafanarak, there's a Ha'ara, where it quotes the Semach Tzedek, and we are going to look at Shaya Suchovas of the Semach Tzedek, the um, instruction of the Semach Tzedek on this topic. And this is the source, 11 in your So it says, When is it okay to have the little exposure of hair that goes by the Peyos area, specifically in front of one's husband, even when a woman is Nida? Okay. For one's husband, those hairs are considered permissible, just like her face and her hands. But in front of another man who's not her husband, not at all acceptable, and it's considered. So the Alter Rebbe tells us that the hair has to be completely covered and the questionable area is um, the one that needs to be clarified depending on the place. And it's some outside that says, the Psach for Chabad, we have all of our hair covered. The only exception is the little peyos hairs that might come down by the side of the ear, possibly a very low hairline. Also would be something that a woman can be, can have, Coming out doesn't have to worry about that in front of her husband, even at a time when she is Nida. But in front of other men and other people, we are careful to cover all of our hair. Okay, so I want to address um, a point which many of us are familiar with. We've heard of it's quoted, even though it's not our Shita, but people sometimes will quote the Ramesha Feinstein's Heter. So I just want to mention that when people say about two fingers, what it's talking about. So there was a heter that Ramesha gave individual, not as a lechatchila situation, but in that extenuating circumstances. Somebody wrote to, wrote to Ramesha that he wanted to um, get married. This was years ago and it was hard to find God-fearing women who were going to cover their hair. And he said he has a woman who he met and he wants to marry her. She is a Yerushalayim but she's planning to cover her hair and she was going to leave a little bit exposed. And Maisha said that being that it was going to be less than a tefah, which was going to be exposed, it wouldn't be problematic. She's gone fearing it shouldn't prevent him from marrying. So there is no such thing as it's permissible to expose hair. If somebody was following that heter, it was a, a very small area, less than two fingers back um, in the front of the hair. And it's not even our shita, but just to recognize the importance of covering all of the hair, that's just the context in which that heter was given and anything beyond that would a transgression of a very strict loss. We find an interesting letter where the Rebbe actually references this concept of the two fingers. If you look at um, reference number 12 in your booklets, somebody asked the Rebbe um, opinion about Kisu Reish, and Rebbe says, I'm perplexed by the very question. Rebbe says, you state that the kala will wear a shaykel in a manner that all the hair will be covered, except for two fingers in the front that will be, remain revealed. I'm not sure whom you're trying to fool. One cannot fool God. One cannot even fool the entire world. One can only fool oneself. So this was the Rebbe's response to somebody who wrote about leaving two fingers exposed 
um, sort of, you know, relying on that heaven. So clearly that's not the way that we do things. And that concludes point number three of how much of the hair needs to be covered. Any place the hair needs to be covered, it's a full proper covering. The only exception is the payas in front of one's husband, even when one is in bed. I'm going to look now at point number four. With what? How do we cover our hair? What can be used to cover the hair as a proper cover? So according to halacha, anything that properly covers the hair is acceptable. If it's a proper hat, if it's a proper tichel, if it's a proper shetel, even if it was a bag, as long as the hair is completely covered, halachically, it would be acceptable. However, the Rebbe strongly encouraged us, the Babacher women, to cover our hair dafka wearing a shetel, and that the shetels can be beautiful, and that it could be even more beautiful than hair. The main reason for this is because the Rebbe wants us to be so careful to be meticulous in covering our hair properly. And it's extremely difficult to properly cover hair with anything but a shetel. There are communities, not our um, communities, where women are very careful to wear tichels and no hair exposed. They actually shave their heads. So when they shave their heads and they don't have hair and they cover their hair with a tichel, that is their custom and that is fine for them. But we don't shave our heads. And when we have hair, because it's so difficult to cover our hair properly with a tefal, the Rebbe wants us when we go out, when we're in public, to wear a shetel. And even when we're in private, to obviously be super careful with the tefal that we're wearing. In, in reference number 13, it brings down a letter that the Rebbe wrote about this topic, that the necessity of a shetel surely is not in need of explanation, particularly as we readily observe that young women who fulfill their obligation of kisirash with a scarf or a kerchief do so only for a short period of time. This is in addition to the fact that even during this brief period of time, they commonly breach or violate this matter. It's really hard to properly cover with anything but a shetel, and this is why they wanted us to wear shetels to be so careful with covering our hair properly. Now, regarding the question of what about shetels, but isn't it hair and it looks like hair and isn't that a problem? So we actually find that using hair to cover hair is fine, and it even discusses this concept already in the Mishnah when it discusses the laws of carrying on Shabbos and what could be taken in Rishos Harabim, if a woman is wearing a shetel, it discusses this exact topic. In reference number 14, it says, It says a woman is going to go out with a peyanachris, with the shetel in public on Shabbos, and it's not considered carrying. And the Gemara elaborates and says that one of the reasons for this is because a woman should be attractive to her husband. It's fine for her to wear a shetel even on Shabbos. So the fact that the Mishnah and the Gemara discuss the concept of wearing a shetel even so early on teaches us that wearing hair to cover our hair is fine. And what then would be the difference? Um, there is in the Shilti Hagiburim, Rabbi Yeshua Bayaz has several different biyurim. One of his very famous explanations is a beer that he has in his Sefer Shilti Hagiburim, which is a beer on the Rif. And there he explains this concept of shetel on this Mishnah. He says, that as soon as the hair is detached from the body, it's no longer connected to, to life. The concept of inappropriate thoughts 
no longer is a problem. And this idea is actually also discussed in the Yasko Avi, who was in the early 1900s, who explains that the Yitzhahara only rules over something that's living. So as soon as hair is detached from the body, and again, is no longer connected to light, it doesn't have that same pull, that same draw, and the Yitzhahara doesn't rule over it. It doesn't have any control. Um, it's more like a garment. It's more like, um, you know, if there's a beautiful mannequin, a beautiful wax figure, it's not attractive to a person like a person is, right? It's like a doll. It's something that's clearly lifeless. So even a beautiful shape is something which doesn't have the problem or the issue of cure her as would be found by actual hair. So wearing a shape is certainly not an issue. And this is definitely what the Rebbe encouraged us to do. Regarding the issue of Maris Ayin, there are various explanations for it. Different communities have different explanations for it as well. But um, there are several different reasons brought down by Rabbi Shifangstein. One of them is that we don't institute new prohibitions of Maris Ayin that were not mentioned in the Gemara. So this topic of Shaita was mentioned in the mission of the Gemara, but there was no issue of Maris Ayin brought there. Um, many people also know that it's a Shaita. So there are various different explanations that are brought down, but we do not hold that Maris Ayin is an issue by wearing a beautiful Shaita. Of course, the shape needs to be tsanua, it needs to be appropriate. Um, possibly this is connected more with an kite issue. The most important thing is that the hair is covered, but specific styles or lengths or things like that might depend on different communities. It's sort of a mashpia question of what would be appropriate, just like hair needs to be um, tsanua for a girl and just like clothing needs to be proper, so too a shadow will need to be proper. Um, so it's important to get individual guidance in this matter to make sure that a woman is able to feel um, simcha with keeping this mitzvah, feel good about keeping this mitzvah, feel like this mitzvah is not something that is going to be um, compromised because of um, specific details of it. Okay. Um, many, many questions come in about the lace top shapels, the new shapels that are out that are so natural and beautiful and comfortable looking. Um, this is also probably something commit, um, that would be different in different communities. Um, Mikvah.org actually took the lace top shapels and brought it to several different rabbanim to look over. And they issued a stock that it's important that if one is going to have a lace top shapel, they need to ensure that the lace is lined so that the hair can't be seen through the lace. So if you would put the lace top shapel, let's say on a, um, a shapel head, if you see the, the color, the white of the shape of head, if it's a dark shape, well, the white would become pure. I guess depending on your color, you'll figure out how to see. You put your hand underneath. If you could see through the lace, then the lace needs to be lined, and shapelmakers can easily line them. Many of them do it automatically. Um, but as long as there's an opaque lining, it doesn't take away from the beauty of the shape. It just ensures that the hair is properly covered, and that's what's super important. And I'm Hashem, everybody shoes careful with this mitzvah should be getting all the brachis that are able to be accessed through being meticulous in keeping this mitzvah, okay? Um, then there are a lot of questions that come in about um, hats on top of shapefuls or partial shapefuls or other pieces of shapefuls but properly covering the hair. So I wanna share two stories um, on the topic. Again, it's a topic that 
For sure, the Rebbe wanted us to wear shaitals and proper shaitals, as we'll see from the stories. And individual questions or needs in this area are also important to discuss with individual mashkim who can guide people um, where they're holding. But one, I actually just called um, Mrs. Sternberg last week to hear the details of the story by herself, but from her, from her personally. Um, but she mentioned that one year when they were putting out the Neshek brochure, maybe in the 80s, so they had a PR guy who was taking care of the project and they had a woman who was going to be photographed, Benjamin Lech, with a beautiful shape. And the, and the PR guy thought that it would be better for her to wear a, a tiffle, to put something on top of the shape So it's clearly obvious that she's like a front woman covering her hair. So they did that. He staged the photo and printed 500,000 copies of the brochure. And somebody, soon after seeing the, the brochure before it was out, called Mrs. Sternberg and expressed concern that it looks like the woman isn't covering her hair properly because here the tiffle covers part of her hair, but then the shape that's sticking out looks like hair. So Mrs. Sternberg didn't know what to do. And she wrote a letter to the Rebbe asking. And the Rebbe said that being that somebody expressed a concern about this issue, certainly others will also have a similar concern. So it would be a problem to use these brochures the way that they were. And the system didn't know what to do and she was trying to work it out. She ended up, she was speaking to Rabbi Krinsky who suggested, why don't you put a line underneath each photo that says a sticker that would say, the woman in the photo was wearing a shape of. So Mrs. Sternberg asked the rabbi if that would be acceptable and the rabbi said yes. And they sent back the 500,000 brochures to the printer who fixed every one of them with that very important message that somebody shouldn't possibly think that wearing a partial tuffle on top of a shape is acceptable. And obviously all the brochures that were printed afterwards were printed with full shapes. The other story is actually a very famous story about Molinemis. And 18 years ago, when I was given the class on her covering, I actually called her up and asked if she would share with me the story again firsthand. I hadn't seen it written, I just heard rumors here and there. So she said to me, she said, it's very humbling and embarrassing to share the story because she argued with the Rebbe, but she agreed to share it. She said she was happy to share it for what it would accomplish. She said that when she was first married, she went into Yechidus, she was already expecting, a few, a few months after she was married, she went into Echidus with her husband. And the Rebbe, she said that at that time, the shapes you could imagine were so artificial looking. She said that the fronts were so awful that she, she didn't think she could wear it like that. So she got a shape that started about two inches back so that she didn't have that uncomfortable front. And she wore a hat on top of her shape so that her hair was completely covered. Most of it was covered with the shaple, and a little bit was covered with the hat. So after the Rebbe spoke to her, both together with her husband, the Rebbe asked her husband to leave the room, and the Rebbe said to her, Mendak antan a shaple, you need to wear a shaple. And Moranema said, I'm wearing a shaple, a hand shaple. And the Rebbe said again, Mendak antan a shaple. And she said again, she thought a little bit of realize it was a shaple, that it's a halba shaito. And the Rebbe said, she said, this is a direct quote, a halba shaito is the halba gesund. That a half shaito is like half health. And she said, she got like a little bit nervous here. She's expecting and she wants all the good health that could be possible. 
But the Rebbe smiled and said, Far Anton, Asheto, Vetman Ongizla, Gizont, Parnasa, Onachas, Far Kinder, On Kins, Kinder. That for wearing the Asheto were promised, Gizont, Parnasa, and Nachas, for children and children's children and grandchildren. Gizont, Parnasa, Nachas, Far Kinder, On Kins, Kinder. And the Rebbe smiled and said, No, Vas Nach Vilstu, what else do you want? And Rabbi said, "Thus is Shangenul. This is already enough." Rabbi Nemes was pulled back into the room, and Rabbi said that he should buy the nicest, most beautiful shekel. And if he didn't have money, they could arrange a loan with Rabbi Chadikov that she should get the best shekel, and she should find a friend who was familiar and knowledgeable with shekels, and she should get something that was beautiful and that she would want to wear. It's so important that here her hair was completely covered. But the Rebbe said there's something about wearing a shekel, about the full shekel that the Rebbe wanted her to be careful with, that others should see, that she should be comfortable, she should love her shekel, she should want to perform this mitzvah. And this is a very powerful message and a lesson for us, too, to think of how this relates to our own lives and our own situations. Definitely personal guidance from a mashbiyah is necessary when there are questions that come up. But just in a general sense, knowing how dear and precious this mitzvah is, to, to us, to the Rebbe, is something which can help but motivate us to perform it properly. I want to move on now that we explore the different aspects of halakha to focus more on that private setting because the Rebbe spoke a lot about it also. And he said we're going to get back to it with some of these ideas. So first of all, we all know the positive until says, Shivisi Hashem Menegi Samit. Hashem is always before us. Hashem's presence is always here. And that's one aspect that relates to everything, clothing, dress, our behavior. Hashem is always with us. But when it comes specifically to covering our hair, there's another dynamic, there's another element that relates to us as well. And this is the very famous story in the Gemara that the Rebbe mentioned numerous times about Kinchis. We're all familiar with the story of Kinchis, that here she was a woman who had a family of Kohanim and her seven sons all became Kohanim Gedolim, not because they were dying, but because they each had an opportunity to at least fill in. Why did the Rebbe focus so much on the story and emphasize it so much? Why is it something that the Rebbe wanted us to hear and think about a woman who, who seemingly acted in an extraordinary way on, on a almost unreachable level. So let's look at some of the points that the Rebbe said, and let's think about this question. First of all, I want to emphasize that in order for someone to be a Kohen Gadol, it was something that was, they had to have a lot of very special qualities. And here, when Kim Chis said, the rafters of my home never saw my hair, right? She didn't see, she was acting this way for many, many years. Kahuna Gedoyla, the Korean Gadol, isn't until he's, he's past Bar Mitzvah, he's 20 years old already, he's past 20. Many years went by where she was very careful with this mitzvah before she actually saw this incredible results that her children um, were fit for Kahuna Gedoyla. And the Rebbe says that the reason that Torah tells us the story is because it's to teach every Jewish daughter how much we need to be scrupulous with the mitzvah of Teva, when we practice something, when we get used to a certain mode of behavior, it's easier for us to do it, and it impacts us in all different scenarios. And the Rebbe said that 
you know, someone could say, what do I need to kaihanim gedolim? It's enough. She could have said, it's enough. My kids are kaihanim. Someone who's not a kaihan could say, it's enough. My kids are regular kids. It's fine for them to be average. I don't want them to be, you know, the top. What do they need to be? But the point is that if a woman, if Kim Chis knew that she had the ability that her kids could reach the stage of kahuna gedolim, she said, I'm going to do whatever is in my power to help them reach their potential. And I think that every mother could appreciate this sentiment that when somebody knows that there's something that I can do, not everything is in our power and a lot of it is out of our control, but the things that we do have the ability to do, it's a quality of a mother to want to help her child succeed and reach, achieve the most that he can achieve. And there's so much frustration that comes from thinking that something more could have been done, but it wasn't done and, and I could have done it differently. So it's almost a gift that the Rebbe is telling us to think about campus, think about this extraordinary level and see what can I do to do my best so that it will impact my family because this is a specific channel. Somehow, we'll talk more about this next week, but the mitzvah of Kisui Rosh is connected with these very deep, very strong, important um, brachas that impact not only ourselves, ourself, our spouse, our children, our families, and generations, as the other said. Kahuna Gedele was something that was transferred to next generations. There's a different sefer. The Rebbe speaks about Rachel Imeno and how she gave up something that was comfortable for her Instead of being buried with Yaakov, she wanted to be buried on the side of the road. Why? That she should be available for her children. When we were going to be going out in Golas, and we were going to need to know that Rachel's there for us, we could daven by Rachel. Because of that, she had the quality of vitor, of giving in on something that was comfortable for her and, and more pleasant for her, but for the sake of her children. And that it says there that this is actually the quality of a, a Yiddish mother. To, to do our best, to maximize what we can for the sake of our children. And if you think about it, the Chachamim didn't ask Kim Chis's husband, what did you do? How much did you learn with them? What did you do to help that your children should be behind them? They asked Kim Chis because they knew that a mother is the one who molds and who shapes her child. And that there was something special that Kim Chis did that was out of the limelight, that nobody saw and nobody knew about. They knew that it was her. And they said, what was it? And she also knew what it was. She knew that it was the fact that she was careful specifically with this mitzvah of Kisui Reish. She knew that that's what was linked with the fact that her children were able to become Kaihan Gedailan. In um, source number 17, Ratu, it brings down a Ksav Yad Kodesh from the Rebbe, where there were different challenges that were taking place. And the Rebbe said the challenges were used specifically, unfortunately, that they were linked with certain leniencies that were going on in the areas of Karas and Mishpacha and Smeas. But the Rebbe always focuses on the positive and said, from there we learn that when we're careful, from the Tzniyas of Kimchas, we see she merited seven Kahanam Gedalim. And so too, when we're careful with, with these laws, with these different inyanim and imagine the tremendous brachas that it brings. I want to look with you at the, the Zohar that speaks about the mitzvah of Kisui Rosh and what exactly it is that the Zohar says. It's interesting because there are two different places in the Zohar that discusses this. 
One of it discusses tremendous blessings. I'm going to read some of what it says. The other one discusses Hashem, a bunch of negative things. And the Rebbe says, I choose to quote only the brachis, omitting the negative. Countless times, the Rebbe writes, I only am going to write, I'm only going to focus on the brachis, which means what we need to hear, what we need to, to know to motivate us is the brachis. And let's look what it says. It says her children will enjoy increased stature over other children. Moreover, her husband shall be blessed with all the blessings, blessings of above and blessings of below, with wealth, with children and grandchildren. This is the Zahar describing the brachis that a woman is able to access, the channel that's accessible through the mitzvah of Kisui Reish. The children should be able to be recognized as special, wonderful Yiddish children, brachis of above, brachis from below. We probably can't even comprehend the extent of what these brachis include. But wealth, children, and grandchildren, again, generations, this is something that's very powerful. And perhaps the reason that the Rebbe emphasized this is because the Rebbe wants us to have these brachis. The Rebbe wants us to recognize that even though sometimes it's really hard and there are challenges that we encounter, but if we're able to focus on the benefits, on the, the results, on these brachas that are promised by the Rashbi, right? That are written in the Zayhar. It will help motivate, motivate us to get there. Um, I think that when we, um, when we want to take an idea like this and sort of um, connect it to ourselves and, and take steps in, in these directions, um, there are a few different things. Number one is, is just learning and knowing what it says. And this number two sort of motivates us and helps us feel, of course, we all want this, right? And then number three, another really important step that makes the difference between taking those steps or sort of freezing is figuring out what practical things we need to do to make it happen. So we hear, we know, we want, we're motivated. And then sometimes they're just very practical things that we need to do. If there's that tiffle that's not good, get rid of it. Buy some great tiffles that cover really well that we're going to use when we're in the house. If I only have one shaitel, that's going to be really hard for me. The Rebbe actually asked somebody if she had two shaitels, right? The Rebbe was only Masada Kedushan for people who agreed that they were going to wear shaitels. And they were asked somebody, do you have two shaitels? Meaning there's that practical piece. And maybe if I'm going out in the, in the heat in the summer with my kids to the park and I don't want to ruin my shaitel, maybe I just need a comfortable, easy, inexpensive shaitel that's going to do the job. And do is it comfortable? Am I happy to wear it? Different things that we could think about. What is getting in the way of me from being able to perform this mitzvah as well as I can? And what can I do to help? And I think it works like this with anything. If somebody wants to um, have a healthier lifestyle and they're going to read up on it and hear and know what's so important, it's sort of out of reach until they take the practical steps and, and make a schedule and fill their cabinets and make sure that their lifestyle is going to encourage them to follow um, what they want. So learning step one, motivating step two, maybe talking it over with friends, figuring out what we can do to really take a step in the right direction. Um, will help us take the practical steps we need to Hashem, tap in to these amazing brachas that are um, there for us. So we want to set ourselves up 
for success. I want to look, let's get in deep. I just want to look at a few letters where the rabbi addresses a couple of points and then we're going to wrap up. So in reference number 18 in the sources, somebody writes to the rabbi about the problem of Kisari Rosh, and the custom. The rabbi says, it's not, it's not a custom, right? It's an explicit law. And Deborah focuses on the Zohar and the Brach is brought down the, from the Zohar. And then listen, Deborah writes, I would also add to the above that it boggles the mind that it should be a problem for anyone who has a spark of faith in her heart and desires that her married life be truly fortunate and blessed with these blessings and good fortune extending to the husband and wife as well as the future children. God bless them. Can there be any comparison whatsoever of the unpleasantness even if you wish to say that there is unpleasantness that exists in Kisri Roish in comparison to Hashem's brachis. Sometimes we might have certain unpleasantness and we don't have to ignore it. We don't have to pretend that there isn't any unpleasantness. If there is unpleasantness, we can figure out what is it that's, that's causing the problem. I think that women are really good at knowing the concept that pain brings gain, right? Um, in whatever way it's experienced. So if there is some unpleasantness, it's not pretending it doesn't exist, but stopping to think. Whoever says, if we focus on the brachas compared to the unpleasantness, it's so worth it. So even if you know the, the nausea of the during pregnancy, the going through labor, when we know that there's something that is so incredible that we're reaching and achieving, this is something that enables us to renew our efforts and to come up with creative ways to deal with the unpleasantness. We don't have to ignore it, but we can sort of figure out how to work it through so that we can be successful in this and in, in not. The letter number 19, the Rebbe actually addresses somebody who was complaining that wearing a shako caused her head to hurt. Let's look at what the Rebbe says, the advice that the Rebbe gives this woman. So the Rebbe says, when you write that wearing a shako makes your head hurt, it's possible that, the Rebbe gives two suggestions, possibilities. The Rebbe says, A, it could be the falsehood of the Yetzirah who does not want mitzvahs to be performed and does not want Eden to be showered with blessings. What an incredible thing. Somebody literally feels like her shaykel is hurting and it could be that the Yetzirah is causing a woman to feel physical pain and discomfort because the Yetzirah doesn't want us to succeed, doesn't want us to access brachas. I think that even modern medicine agrees that people can have physical symptoms as a result of emotional or psychological situations, right? So yes, it could be that it's hurting because of that. But when we identify that that's what it is, we can work on that piece and, and work on the results as well. The second point that Deva says is ever so practical. If it is indeed true that it's physical hurt as a result of something physical, then this demonstrates that the hair is too long and should be cut shorter. When you do so, your head surely won't hurt when wearing a shaper. Whoever wants to help this woman access the brachis that she deserves and that she so much wants. And if someone's hair is curly or thick, a shaper will hurt. 
But by cutting the shape, it solves, I'm sorry, cutting the hair, it solves the problem. So sometimes there are just really practical things that need to be done. And different people will need different things. So brainstorming, thinking, and reaching out for to, to brainstorm together with others is something that can surely help. I would like to conclude with my favorite letter that I saw on the topic when preparing this class. It's a letter that was written in English on New Test Special on 5715. And there are a few very powerful points that the Rebbe says in this letter. And I think that it's so uplifting and the message is one that every one of us can really take to heart. If you have it in front of you, feel free to look inside number 20. And if you don't, just listen up because the words of the Rebbe are so powerful. I was pleased to receive your letter of November 3rd in which you write the good news that you have ordered a shape during your recent visit to New York. Hashem will surely fulfill his promise as it is written in the Holy Zayar that it will bring Hatzlacha to you, your husband and children in good health and prosperity especially in your case, where in addition to the deed itself, there is also a Kiddush Hashem. I am sure you will wear it with joy. And as the Bashantav emphasized, the importance of serving Hashem with joy and Hashem's brachis will be even greater. I want to stop there for a second. First of all, the Rebbe is so happy that she's finally buying a shetel and that this is going to be a source of brachis, so this and Kiddush Hashem. The Rebbe says, I want you to wear it with joy. This is a mitzvah that we need to fulfill with joy. If it's bringing brachis, and it's a source of, it's a treasure that this mitzvah was given to us, we need to be able to fulfill it with joy. And if there's any glitch that we feel, if there's something that's interfering with our joy, let's figure out what it is. Let's try to find what we can do to arouse within us the feeling of joy so that we can wear it with joy and comfort and proudly and be zeichet to all of these brachas. The next point the Rebbe says, I want to add my prayerful wishes that Hashem grant you those hosts to be instrumental in making your friends and acquaintances following, follow your example, which you will support also by other forms of influence. So not only is this something that affects us, but it impacts the people around us. And if we're wearing it with joy, and we're talking about joy, especially if you're a real influencer, you not only impact yourself, but you impact those around you. So if you want to give a gift to your closest friends, if you want to give a gift to your community, recognize that by keeping this mitzvah well, we're able to also impact those around us and help them keep this mitzvah well, thereby bringing brachis to all of their families as well. So this is a mitzvah where we set an example for others too. And the last point the Rebbe says, not only does the shaykhul show the true Jewish spirit of adherence to our laws and customs, which it does, right? But it also shows strength of character and will and the power of conviction, not being swayed by external influences and the opinions of people who are rather devoid of content inwardly and even outwardly are of no consequence. So think about what is it that a person is really displaying when they're careful with this mitzvah, when it's hot, when they're running out to carpool and they're just going for two minutes, when they're going jogging and they're, they're exercising with others and they have that exercise shape because they know how important this is. 
Rebbe says it's a display of strength of character, will, and the power of conviction, an inner strength that every Yiddish woman possesses. Every one of us has these qualities, and this is a way that we're able to express them and influence our families and also those around them. The Rebbe actually told a story that was related by the Friedrich Rebbe that the city of Frankfurt was initially full of Moschilin and people, free thinkers, were trying to bring uh, uh, an, um, an opposite feeling of Yiddishkeit to the entire city. And for a while, that was very much the feeling. And then it turned around and it became a city full of pious individuals. The Friedrich Rebbe said that the change was a result of three women, three women who decided that they were going to be very careful in a few mitzvahs. Which mitzvahs? They said they're going to be careful with Kisri Rosh covering their hair, wearing a shaito, with Taras HaMeshpacha, and with giving their children a kasher achena. Three people in the community said, we are going to do this right. Shaito, Taras HaMeshpacha, and Chena. And as a result of their efforts, they influenced their families, other women, friends, until the entire city was turned over because of their efforts. So every one of you, every one of us should recognize that there's a tremendous power that every Yiddish woman has. And by us thinking of our piece of it, we're able to really turn the tide and to bring brachis to our families, to our communities, to all of Kal Yisrael, and most importantly, what we want is the ge'ula. That's what we're working for. When we'll be able to see how the joy and the effort, the fungsara agra, the harder it is, the more the rewards are, we're all worth it. We'll be able to see the brachas because it's hard when we do it and we don't see the results. But Mr. Shamadami, the results should be be'en basar. I'm wishing everybody brachas and hatzlacha. Again, if there are any questions, feel free to either email them to biasyehudi at gmail or you can WhatsApp me. 862-200-3756. And we're in a week from tonight. We're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to delve into the Hasidus on the top. It's a whole new dimension um, and a deeper element. We're going to have some stories that we're going to share. And in a we're going to address the questions that come in. Wishing everybody a good night. A good night. We hope you enjoyed today's recording. Please take a moment to leave a rating or a review to help others find the podcast. We welcome you to support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. For feedback, please email podcast at mikvah.org. Have a wonderful day.